Nighttime on Still Waters. This is NB506812, narrow casting into the night from somewhere on Britain's waterways. Fifth of March, Friday. This week, after an absence of some weeks, the cormorant is regularly back, always circling the tree two or three times, always alighting on the same branch. And the names we give to it sing like a litany, or a darkly gothic ballad. Brongi, Coal Goose, Kaween Elder, Lairblade, Parson, Morvran, Carnhoverer, Sea Crow, Scart. It's as if we recognize that we can never capture a life like this in a single name. Its strange, elusive beauty, its sleekness, its elegance and poise. Balanced there on that gnarled branch, caught somewhere between darkness and light. This is the Narrowboat Erica, wishing you a warm welcome as we navigate the night canal side. Some particularly resilient and stubborn Atlantic systems have been battling it out over the UK recently, slowly pushing away that block of high pressure that gave us all of those glorious days of rich, warm sunlight and the promises of spring. And once more the stove-warmed cabin seems much more enticing than sitting on the bank. And walks, particularly morning walks, are accompanied by the internal commentary of, hmm, perhaps I should have worn that hat, or mm, I should have picked up those gloves. Last week we were talking about John Clare and his poem, The Shepherd's Calendar, and he begins his section on March with these words, March, month of many weathers, wildly comes. And although it's early days, we've yet to encounter his next description. Inhale and snow and rain and threatening hums and floods while often at the cottage door. The shepherd stands to hear the distant roar, loosed from the rushing mills and river locks, with thundering sound and o'erpowering shocks, and headlong hurry through meadow briggs, brushing the leaning sallows fingering twigs in feathery foam and eddy hissing chase, rolling a storm o'er taken traveller's pace, from bank to bank along the meadow lees, spreading and shining, like to little seas. And yet it's not all gloom, and Clare has learnt the lesson of February well, and he continues with a note of hope. Yet winter seems half weary of its toil, and round the ploughman on the elting soil will thread a minute's sunshine wild and warm through the ragged places of the swimming storm. And off the shepherd in his path will spy a little daisy 
in the wet grass lie, that to the peeping sun enlivens gay like labour smiling on a holiday. And so through the rest of the month he continues to chart and embrace each small yet significant sign of spring. Miles Hadfield authoritatively states in his inimitable way that the Anglo-Saxons call this month, I think this is how you pronounce it, Chlydmanath, the loud or stormy month, and then goes on to characterise it as presenting a hasty panorama of seasons. And the 16th century calendar of the shepherds, not to be confused with John Clare's shepherd's calendar, characterises the month in this way, that the air is sharp, but the sun is comfortable. But for me, the true spirit of the month is probably expressed the best by John Macefield in his poem, The Cargoes. And after the gloriously flowing and syllable-rich descriptions of the exotic ships and their cargoes plying the sun-drenched waters of the Mediterranean and the tropics. Macefield concludes his poem with Dirty British coaster with salt cake smokestack butting through the channel in the mad March days with a cargo of tine coal, road rails, pig lead, firewood, ironware and cheap tin trays. That's beautiful. It just absolutely captures for me the the whole essence of this wild and sometimes uncomfortable, sometimes exhilarating month. And I'm not sure whether it's just nostalgia or being fooled by the romance of the past, but there's something appealing about the dirty British coaster and and other working boats. And we were treated this week with a visit from the coal boat Roach. Um, Certainly not a dirty British coaster, um, but uh, a working boat nonetheless. And uh, she tied up for the night just below us. And fuel boats like the Roach provide such an essential service for boaters who, unlike us, are not moored near facilities where they can easily uh, pick up coal or wood or diesel. Um, And that's even more so this year and this winter with the lockdown restrictions of movement. And it's not just coal and wood they supply. They, They also bring bottles of gas and diesel and sometimes even other essential supplies that are needed for the everyday running of a, of a boat, antifreeze, engine oils, even sometimes fenders and um, things like that. And I am, have to admit to being rather in awe of the people who work these boats. It is incredibly dirty, cold, hard work. And I've posted throughout the winter, I've been posting or sharing some of the photographs taken from the coal boat Alton, uh, which are works of art in themselves, but really capture the difficulties that they face in working through the ice and the snow and working right into the, into the night, into the darkness. And they've managed to keep going pretty much all the way throughout the winter. 
when their services are obviously needed the most. And they must have been facing some horrible conditions. And I can only imagine constantly with wet, dirty, wet hands, having to handle heavy coal bags and metal gas bottles. For me, they're the real heroes of the cut. And also for me, it always feels a little bit of an occasion when I see one pass by. It's a bit like spotting a fire engine when I was a lad. And I've posted some pictures of the roach on the Facebook page and also on um, Instagram and Twitter, if you would like to see them. And talking of social media, I was really touched by a comment left by Pamela Ennis, Hakima Pamela, on Twitter, uh, where you wrote that sometimes you come home from a particularly difficult crisis at work in the wee hours of the morning and listen to the NOSW as a way to relax and remember that the night time is also full of so much beauty. And why that touched me so much was that's exactly what I've wanted for these podcasts. And from messages that I've seen of others, I know that some of you are finding this time particularly trying and difficult. And I'm glad you are also finding here a bit of comfort and even in the disembodied voice coming to you from a small boat under the stars that you don't feel quite so alone in the darkness. Thank you also to, to everybody who, for your comments and support. Although we've not had much rain recently, and actually the humidity has been quite low, there's been a sort of damp feel to the air, and that's led to the return of muddy towpaths. And each time I go out, I'm reminded of the advice given to us before we even moved aboard doing some research and, and asking people that we met on the, the towpath or at the different marinas and brokers about what we need to be thinking about and what's essential pieces of equipment. And not just for the boat, but, but also for us personally. And the two pieces of equipment that most frequently came up were one, a head torch, and two, a good pair of rigger boots. The usefulness and benefit of a head torch was very practically demonstrated to me by Neil Upper Creek Wharf, Neil Stittle, who did a lot of work on our boat and in fact fitted out beautifully the, the office here in the stern. And he became the fount of all wisdom uh, relating to anything to do with narrow boats or canals in general. And he always, always wore a head torch. In fact, I have never, ever seen him not wearing a head torch. And that's even when he's riding around the place on his bike. A head torch is actually an indispensable piece of equipment. And that's not just for the night walks with Penny. It's for working around the boat. Narrow boats have lots of nooks and crannies that are invariably dark. And 
having a torch is essential, but having a torch you don't have to hold is even more useful. And my only real quibble with head torches is that they're so blooming bright. Why? What's going on with torches in general? They seem to be just getting brighter and brighter. Um, absolutely dazzling. I mean, surely there's an optimum level of brightness that we need. I, I've even seen some torches being advertised now that can set fire to pieces of paper. I mean, come on. Do we really need torches that bright? But anyway, that's, that's me getting onto my hobby horse. Um, it's just, it would be nice to be able to do work without the danger of getting archive from reflections from people's headlamps. And the other item that kept on cropping up were boots and particularly rigger boots. To be honest, I'd always turn my nose up at rigger boots, preferring the old normal Wellingtons or gumboots. And in fairness, Donna still has hers and she finds them invaluable. However, I did find that my Wellingtons were a bit awkward getting in and out um, of them and also that they needed changing anyway because they were split. So I decided to purchase a pair of rigger boots and I have to say I have been so impressed with them. They are much easier to handle on a boat. I've just kind of slip on and slip off if we need to get out of the boat very quickly or need to do something outside very, very quickly. Whereas Wellingtons, I found a little bit more um, awkward. However, having said that, Donna has no problems at all with hers. And a good pair of boots seems to have always been not just important, but essential on the canals. And in 1860, the impresario and journalist and social commentator and reformer John Hollingshead published an essay describing his journey up the what would later become known as the Grand Union Canal from London up to Birmingham. And Hollingshead was writing at a time when railways were very much in the ascendant. And although still relatively new, canals and working canal life appeared to him and to many like him to be a step back into a more leisurely bucolic past. And so there is this sort of patina of romance attached to it already. And in many ways, his account is an idealized picture that gives a often strongly paternal and at times class-based account, but it's also full of humor and, and also an attempt at respectful understanding and conversation. And the much derided and focus of suspicion that the working bargemen or boatmen are presented as full of that whimsical homespun wisdom, rather an urban equivalent to Rousseau's noble savage. But what becomes noticeable is that Hollingshead seems to be totally captivated by their footwear. He almost seems to be unable to pass any comment on those working in the boats without some kind of reference to what they're wearing on their feet. And even before his journey on the flyboat, the Starport, with his companion Cuddy, 
starts. He meets up with some boatmen from Staffordshire and Warwickshire and Lancashire at the, the company station. And he describes them dressed in their short fustian trousers, heavy boots, red plush jackets, waistcoats with pearl buttons and fustian sleeves, and gay silk handkerchiefs slung loosely around their necks. A little later on, we meet the Stourport's captain, uh, a Captain Randall, and are introduced to his son. This gives Hollingshead the opportunity to wax almost lyrical and plunge us into an extraordinarily detailed account of a boatsman's boot. He writes, Captain Randall's son was standing upon the narrow roof of the little cabin, beginning his toilet for the day by combing his hair that had been turned to a straw colour by much exposure to the air and sun. He was light-eyed, full-blooded, red-cheeked, good-tempered, clean-looking young man, of twenty-three. Presently he dipped a mop into the canal, drawing it carefully around the edges of a pair of remarkably heavy boots, that had never known brush or blacking in this world, and never would. A bargeman's boot looks more as if it's been turned out of a blacksmith's forge than a shoemaker's stall. It differs from a navvy's boot in being very loose. The navvy's boot is a laced-up article, binding itself very close around the ankles, so close, in fact, that it seems a marvel how such a powerful and gigantic body can be supported upon such frail props without causing them to snap short off like pieces of tobacco pipe. The bargeman's boot is an easy, full-sized blucher, with upper leather as thick as a moderate slice of bread and butter, and with soles like those worn by short performers who personage giants upon the stage. There's none of that finish, none of that rounding off, none of that dandy coarseness about them, which distinguishes the shooting boots displayed for show in Regent Street windows, or which gentlemen drag after them when they go upon the moors. Rude, uncultivated strength is the main feature of the bargeman's boot. The sole absolutely bristles with a plantation of gooseberry-headed hobnails, the toe and heel heavily strengthened with massive bandages of iron. Twelve shillings a pair is paid to makers, who reside upon the canal banks, for these boots, and they must be dirt cheap if only to sell for old metal. The bargeman's stocking is another peculiar manufacture. Worsted in material, bright and clear blue in colour, ribbed and knitted by village hands. It is twice the thickness of domestic worsted, serving perhaps as a shield to protect the foot from the attacks of the heavy boot. And that last comment is on target and significant, because later on in his account, he is in conversation with Captain Randall. And he notes that foot problems can be serious. Standing at the tiller for hours or walking beside the horse can take its toll on the feet of those working the canals. Hollingshead remarks to Randall that he appears to be still very hearty and fit for somebody who is nearing 60. And Randall replies, Yes, Master Ollie, he said, I'm hearty, thank God. 
I eat and sleep well, and I can wust well, though I'm goon a little at the bottom of my feet. And then Hollingshead remarks, I was not surprised to hear of a little tenderness at the sole of the foot, considering the weight and make of the bargeman's boot. And each person that he meets working the canals on his journey, he describes and always mentions the heaviness of their boots. He mentions the little tender girls in heavy boots, slouch sunbonnets and dusty clothes. And these boots take on a more ominous aspect, as he records how children have been known to slip off the boat and into the hungry arms of death, weighed down by the boots upon their feet. At one point they pass another boat, and Randall's son appears to be quite interested in one of the girls who is helping to work it. That's a nice gal, said our straw-haired young man, who was engaged at the tiller, and who drew our attention to a young woman driving a horse along the towing path. She was dressed in a short-listed, short-skirted blue cotton frock, a pair of laced-up heavy boots, a little less heavy than the boatman's boot, and her bonnet was a quilted cowl that hung in flaps upon her shoulders and formed a tunnel in front, at the dark end of which was her half-hidden face. To do her justice, she was clean and not coarse. She was youthful and may have been lovely in the young boatman's eyes. Towards the end of his account, Hollingshead even manages to locate a bootmaker in what he refers to as a boatman's village. He's observed all along the way how little contact is made between the boatmen and the villages and towns through which they pass, with this one exception. Hollingshead doesn't actually name it and says that it's just close to Braunston. It seems to be a place of joy and a place of holiday. He describes it as being the only place we had seen on our journey where the people on the land seemed to belong to the people on the water. And in this boatman's village consisted only of a few houses all crowded around the lock and bridge. There was, he writes, a boatman's bootmaker's, from the recesses of whose workshop came the most deafening clinking of hammers closing rivets up, showing clearly the metallic character of the article produced. Canals and boots always seem to be a perfect match. Well, for tonight at least, the boots are safely stored away under the cratch, ready for the morning's bankside foray with Penny. And the temperatures are falling, and the stoves need banking up for the night. So this is N.B. Erica, signing off and wishing you a safe and warm and peaceful night. Good night. Temperature. Outside. 2.7 degrees. Inside. 24 degrees. Humidity, 63%. Dew point, minus 4 degrees. Wind direction, northeast. Wind strength, 
3 miles per hour. Barometric pressure 1032.5 steady. Cloud cover 91%. Cloud ceiling 40,000 feet. Precipitation nil. Moon phase 40.3% waning crescent. Day length 11 hours 15 minutes. Sunset 1755. Skycasting 638.